encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Jude. Letter of Jude, consider just for a few moments, Jude verses 3 and 4. Finish out tonight our series on strengthening your serve. We started this summer and have continued through into the fall, uh, hopefully encouraging you and edifying you, challenging you, exhorting you with the examples of faithful servants, both in Scripture and in church history, encouraging you to be like them. As we consider tonight the man known as the black dwarf, as he was not so affectionately called by his opponents, I want to start in Jude verses 3 and 4, where the clear testimony of Scripture is to call us to contend for the faith. Jude 3, very familiar verses to you. Listen to them with fresh ears. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to stop other things and consider the scripture and the application of scripture in the life of of one faithful who's gone before us. We pray, Lord, that you would fill us with that same courage we see in Athanasius and in men like Jude and the other apostles and associates of the apostles. We praise you for their example, for how you've used them to call us to contend for the faith. We pray that you would do that now in the minutes ahead for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As you consider Jude 3 and 4, I want you to notice a few things about this text that Jude, uh, as he writes, he writes to the church immediately there in verse 3. It's a, a plural reality, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. He's, he's calling to the church uh, as a whole, knowing that they as a whole are under threat, and it is their job as the church to be prepared and to be called to battle against the threat of uh, of the challenges to the gospel that will enter in. He knows that the church uh, in uh, its existence will welcome, uh, in the sense of, of being the work of Christ, will be a, an easy target for the work of Satan. And uh, unnoticed, unaware, those will come in who hold not to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As you read the rest of the letter, you see it's a, a rousing letter. The, the letter from Jude is a rousing letter exposing the sneaky reality of false teachers that enter into the midst of the church, faithful churches far and wide, and uh, seek to cause division, uh, pick fights to tear down sound doctrine. And so Jude calls the church, as you know, to contend for the faith. He does not call them to be divisive. He does not call them to pick the fights. He calls them to contend faithfully and courageously for the faith that once, has, once and for all has been delivered to the saints. It's the apostolic faith, the faith upon which Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles are the foundation. The church is built upon that foundation, delivered to us by the Holy Spirit of God, as we saw in John 14 this morning, taught to us by the Spirit. We are reminded of it by the Spirit, taught and furthered in the truth. And so the church is to contend for that truth. 
namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you the story tonight of a time when this happened in church history. And we could pick any century. You could pretty much have a timeline in front of you, put your finger on any point in church history, and there's a story to be told of someone contending for the faith. Athanasius just happens to be one of the easiest from which to tell the story. As you know, anyone we tell these stories of, uh, apart from Christ, are, are flawed servants. And that's true for Athanasius. I won't delve into things that were, were flawed about this man, uh, nor would I want him to point the finger at me and talk about all my flaws either. Hopefully, they, we can walk together in faithfulness. But Athanasius, as he uh, lays before us a wonderful example, I want to tell you his story. And as I tell you his story, I want to invoke courage in you. Uh, my desire in laying this biography of this man out before you is not to give you a history lesson. It's to put courage into your chest. It's to make you a man or a woman willing to contend for the faith and for that to to cost you whatever it has to cost you for the faith to be defended, protected, and propagated in a lost and dying world. I'll end our time tonight by just uh, drawing four conclusions, four principles, four truths that I think are easily drawn from Athanasius' story. As with any story, it's hard to know where to jump in. Uh, He doesn't just uh, come at us from a vacuum. There's so much to tell in the history of the church, in the life of Athanasius, um, but I'm going to have to pick something. He was a a small black bishop who stood in the gap for the church in such a critical time that it is not an exaggeration to say that we have the gospel today. Uh, In our day and age, we can be a faithful church because God used this man's courageous faithfulness at a critical point in church history. The 4th century is when he lived, so the 300s AD uh, is when he lived, and it was a time of monumental events and of of people and all kinds of amazing things were happening. It's, It's a pivotal century in human history, let alone in church history. The Roman Empire was still holding massive control over a majority of the civilized world, but there were cracks in her armor. She was starting to see that that her uh, empire probably was not going to last forever. And uh, one of the the charges of of those in the empire were against the emperors. It's your fault that the empire is starting to weaken. And so there was a a call for a, uh, a stronger emperor, and they changed emperors often. And As you come to the end of the 200s, there's a a man who's sitting on the throne as emperor of Rome uh, who goes by the name of Diocletian. And for the majority of his reign, you probably have heard his name said before as you've heard stories of persecution. The majority of his reign was peaceful for the church. He he, uh, was not a Christian, but he was uh, okay with Christians doing what they do. But as the, the yelling and the crying of the citizens of Rome started getting louder and louder, to strengthen the empire, there was one general who had his ear, Diocletian's ear. And he said to Diocletian, you need to strengthen the empire or you're going to lose it altogether. And you need to do that by uh, demanding supreme loyalty be expressed by all in your kingdom. And you need, to, you need to get their expression of supreme loyalty. Well, you see where this is going. I mean, immediately the Christians are out on that. They're not going to pledge any kind of loyalty superseding their loyalty to Christ, to any kind of government figure. And so they refused to do that. Diocletian then uh, 
put the screws to them. He burned and destroyed their buildings with his armies. He collected copies of their scriptures and burned them and destroyed them. Uh, He killed and um, persecuted many Christians to try to get them to the point of uh, calling him their supreme ruler and supreme lord. That was in three, from 303 to 305. So the fourth century starts with that happening in the Roman Empire. Before that happens, though, there's another threat to the church that has been rising within the church, and, and particularly in Egypt where Athanasius uh, will be born and will come into leadership in the church. With that threat of persecution raising its ugly head, uh, there was another, church, another threat in the midst of the church, and that was the monasticism that was propagated by the desert monks. Maybe you've heard of desert monasticism or the desert fathers. You've heard those phrases maybe in church history or uh, you heard them and don't remember them because you weren't awake when that got said. But at some point you heard something about that. Well, these are in, in southern Egypt, many of them. They were elsewhere as well in Africa. But what they were reacting to, these desert monks were reacting to uh, in the late 3rd century, so the 280s to 300 era, the church was, was largely living in comfort and ease, and most Christians didn't have it too hard, and, and they, much like us today, had all the, the joys and, and uh, leisures of modern life, and these monks were seeing in the church a lot of, of ungodliness and worldliness, and so uh, they thought the answer to that was to get away from the world and to go away by yourself and in solitude to meditate on the scriptures and to pursue holiness, and they did all kinds of crazy things. You know, one of the desert fathers um, plopped himself on top of a pillar or a a stick, essentially, for, I forget the amount of years, like 19 years. There's some crazy amount because he was determined. Don't ask me how he ate and how he went to the bathroom. I don't know, but that's what he did, all right? That's the story. And it was just a crazy amount of stuff like that, locking themselves away in caves out in the distant uh, hinterlands away from everyone else so that they could be by themselves and be more godly. Well, this is a threat to the church because it taught the church that there's, there is a godliness that has a form without power, that, that the church, who is supposed to be the proof of the gospel in the world, can take itself out of the world and still be the agent by which the world comes to faith. And those two things obviously don't go hand in hand. And they then obviously then got into all kinds of interesting, crazy, strange ideas as they locked themselves up by themselves and had decades on end to think all by themselves. They came up with some crazy ideas. And so it became a threat to the church at the end of the third century. But as you head into the fourth century, the the greatest challenge to face the church would come to the forefront of church life in 318 AD. So the persecutions, 303 to 305, the rise of the desert monks is happening all through this time. They're, they're highly respected. Uh, even Athanasius had a huge amount of respect for many of them. Um, and so they also, I would argue, are a threat to the health of the church. But there is a greater threat. That threat is going to come to the fore through the preaching of a sermon. Before I get to that, however, uh, you must know that something dramatically has changed from 305 to 318. The Roman Empire has done a complete and total reversal as it relates to Christianity. So whereas in 305, Christians were persecuted under Diocletian, were martyred, churches were destroyed, and Bibles were burned, in 313 AD, Constantine gave his Edict of Milan by which he said that Christianity is now 
the state religion, essentially. That it is not just okay to be a Christian in Rome. Christianity is the religion that Rome will propagate and defend and protect. So what happened? How did we shift so amazingly? Well, in 312 AD, Constantine was in a battle for the empire. Uh, His story is another one that is just astounding to read, and we could tell it sometime, but tonight's not the night. He was preparing for a battle for a bridge that if he wins, he basically, through that battle, will overcome his enemies in the empire, and he will become the emperor, the, the chief supreme ruler of Rome. And as he prepares for that battle, he claims to see a vision of a cross in the sky shining brightly and words spoken to him that proclaimed to him that he would win the battle in the name of Jesus Christ. Did that happen? Who knows? What we do know is he went into the battle and he won. And he claimed he won in the name of Jesus Christ. He, from there, claimed to convert to Christianity, gave the credit to Christ for the victory, and almost overnight the Christian religion in Rome went from outcast and despised to center center stage and applauded. It's one of the great reversals in human history. And there's obviously some good aspects to that newfound place of honor in Rome. Uh, the, the protection that it provided for the church and uh, being able to live a quiet and peaceable life was a great thing. And uh, even some of what Constantine did to get to the bottom of the controversy we're going to talk about tonight, the Lord used his flawed efforts to really solidify and, and bring uh, clarity to this issue. But there's obviously huge dangers that come to the surface quickly and that we are still dealing with today. Uh, namely, the Roman Catholic Church in its uh, view of, of church and state uh, and how it, how it sought to have control over Christendom, the kingdom of Christ on earth, and how it, how it uh, used and wielded the sword of the state to advance the religion of Christianity. Um, all of this is started in 313 AD in the Edict of Milan and Constantine uh, in his way of basically saying if you're in the Roman Empire, you're a Christian. And so now Christianity was no longer a matter of the new birth. It was a matter of your natural birth. You were in if you were in the kingdom. And you can see the obvious problems of that. Uh, The church now becomes involved in the affairs of the state. But more problematic is that the state becomes involved in the affairs of the church. And the church becomes more and more dependent upon the state. And that distinction is minimized greatly over the next several decades. Well, what happened in 318? That's the change, the reversal that happened leading up to this moment. In 318, there is a bishop, uh, a, the, the highest level of church leader. Uh, we would think of him as a pastor today. Uh, already they were starting some of the, the hierarchy that you might see in like Presbyterianism, uh, the worst of it you'd see in like Anglicanism and Catholicism. Some of that was already starting uh, in how they ordered their structure in church life. The, the bishop, uh, his name was Alexander, and he was bishop of Alexandria, so that's easy to remember. He was in Alexandria. Alexandria is a, a um, very influential and important town situated on the, the delta of the Nile, northern Egypt, just uh, north of the main cities of Egypt. It's a place of tremendous learning and education, it's a place of, of amazing influence. And the bishopric of Alexandria was the second most important in the Roman Empire behind that of Rome itself. And Alexander is the bishop of that uh, church in 
Alexandria, and he preached a sermon in 318 by the title of The Great Mystery of the Trinity in Unity. The Great Mystery of the Trinity in Unity. His sermon was orthodox. It was in line with what we would understand about the Trinity, one God, three persons, not polytheism, which was uh, the thing that was being wrestled with in some areas of the church. But as he preached that sermon, one of the presbyters, one of the elders, uh, one of the understudies of Alexander was sitting listening, and his name was Arius, and he was greatly bothered by Alexander's sermon. He was an ascetic scholar. He would often go away by himself, think and write, and he was also a popular preacher, uh, and he took great issue with the sermon. He thought that Alexander didn't hold uh, the distinction between the different members of the Godhead firmly enough that he morphed them all into one person um, and, or into one uh, lacking distinction, one God. And so Arius countered with what he called biblical evidence that there was a time when the Son was not, when the Son didn't exist. And so he's, he, I'm just going to read you a, a chapter from one of the books that was helpful to me. It says, Arius developed biblical support for his position. Did I say a chapter? A paragraph. I'm not going to read you a chapter. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I speak and I'm like three seconds behind what I'm saying, processing. So anyways, a paragraph. Arius developed biblical support for his position. As the firstborn of all creation, the Son is a created being, Colossians 1.15. Moreover, when Jesus prayed to the Father that the disciples may know you, the only true God, he admitted that there is only one God and Jesus is not he, John 17, 3. Furthermore, Jesus himself affirmed, the Father is greater than I. We heard that this morning, John 14, 28. Finally, Jesus admits to an imperfection. He lacks omniscience, not knowing the time of his own return, thus indicating that he is not God, Mark 13, 32. This was the argument of Arius, uh, arguing for Jesus, the Son, being the firstborn of creation, meaning being the first in the order of creation as a created being. Meaning, more specifically, there was a time when the Son did not exist and was brought into existence by the Father in creation. Therefore, his essence between Father and Son is not of the same essence. He's not of the same for lack of a better term, material stuff as God. But he's of a similar material, a similar essence. That was Arius's claim. Well, the church in Alexandria started to hear this, growing more and more alarmed at his teaching. One man in particular took a beef with Arius, and that man was named Athanasius, a short black man who was the closest understudy of Alexander the bishop. Uh, he would eventually take over for Alexander, which I'll tell you in a minute, but he realized immediately, along with Alexander and uh, his tutor and their understanding of the Godhead, that this was an issue of deep significance. Uh, this was no small matter. Left unchecked, they understood this would take away the hope of the gospel. If we lose clarity on the nature and essence of the Son, we lose the reality of hope of eternal life. Athanasius saw that clearly, almost immediately. Alexander saw that clearly, and they started to fight against this rising heresy. Well, word of that got back to Constantine, who had you know, developed his, his uh, capital now in modern-day Turkey, um, away from Rome, which is a, another huge controversial matter in the Roman Empire. He hears of this brewing, and he starts getting involved. He starts writing letters, trying to convince 
both Arius and Alexander to lay down their arms, to, to find a way to get along, to make peace with each other. Because remember what I said this morning, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Let's find a way to make this all work out so we don't upset the apple cart within the empire. Well, it didn't get better. It only got worse. And so in 325, Constantine, the emperor, as the head of the state, said, we are calling for a, a meeting of all of the leaders in the church, all of the bishops. So over 250, the exact number is hard to come by, 250 to 300 men from all over the empire were invited to come and meet at Nicaea, which is up by Constantinople on the northern shore of Turkey. And they're to come and meet and hash this issue out. As they meet together, uh, there's a lot of confusion over the issue. And so Alexander leads the charge against Arius. He lays out the realities that are at stake here and the false views of Christ that Arius has been promoting and proclaiming. And at the end of the council, a creed was drawn up to clearly define the church's understanding of the nature and the essence of Christ. And this is so much of the, the history of the church. It's the, the back and forth over doctrine where you're, you're moving along uh, at breakneck speed and all of a sudden something enters in and starts to challenge and question that which was largely held and understood. And all of a sudden we have to further define what is it that we mean. And so in the 20th century, it really was the nature and work of the Spirit of God started in Topeka, Kansas, of all places. The Pentecostal movement challenged the, the understanding of the church historically of the Spirit, His nature, and His work. And so for a century or more, some would say that's still going on and is still up for grabs, the church has had to wrestle through what does the Bible say about, not that the church never thought about that before, but the church had never had someone in their midst saying the gifts of, of supernatural powers are still prevalent and present in the church. That had not happened until 1903 or 2, whatever it was, when the Pentecostal movement started in, in Topeka, Kansas, among other places uh, in the country. And so the same thing's happening here in Nicaea in the time of Athanasius and Constantinople. All but two of the 200, over 250 bishops present signed the Nicene Creed. Now, when you, if you uh, Google later Nicene Creed, it'll pull up a creed that is mostly what that creed was. It was added to later in 381, the Council of Constantinople. Uh, and, and that's when you, when you read the, the Nicene Creed, that's what you get is the creed that they added to in 381. Just a small detail so you know. I wanted to tell you the whole story there. The battle really, though, was just beginning. You'd think it'd be over, right? All but two signed the creed. The creed was clear that Jesus is of the same essence as the Father. You'd think it's over, but it is just beginning. In 328, Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria, died. Young Athanasius, just 30 years old, was appointed to the role of bishop of Alexandria. This is the second most prestigious and influential post behind Rome. And you can be assured, Constantine had... I don't know if he appointed um, Athanasius, but he had a large say in this. So in some way, Athanasius is behind, or excuse me, Constantine is behind Athanasius' stand for the deity of Christ. And he appoints him or has him appointed as Bishop of Alexandria. The people of Alexandria loved Athanasius. They called him their beloved bishop. His ministry would last for 45 years. He would be exiled. He would be sent out of Alexandria and on the run or in 
essentially a jail for 17 of those 45 years. But the people of Alexandria refused to ever acknowledge any other bishop over them. They loved Athanasius. They respected him and rejoiced in his work. Every time Athanasius was exiled over those 45 years, it was because of conflict over the issue of Arianism in the church. Why could that be? All but two of them signed the Nicene Creed. Why is there ongoing conflict in the church? Well, the reality is most of those bishops who signed that creed did not like to divide over doctrine. They simply did not want to take the stand and call Arius a heretic. In fact, most of them, even in the council, argued for a softer statement that could be redefined, that, that would be open to interpretation, a statement that both the, the Arians or the, uh, the close Arians, the, the ones who are friends of the Arians, and, and the Athanasius crowd could both agree to. They longed for a way forward together. They were willing to sacrifice truth on the altar of peace. But Athanasius clearly said by his life, truth if possible, or excuse me, peace if possible, truth at all costs, as Martin Luther himself also said. These bishops, other bishops, were concerned with how hard of a line Athanasius was taking. They, th- they thought he was uh, dividing too quickly and over something that didn't need to be divided over, wanting to find a middle way, realizing that Athanasius wasn't going to be agreeable to that, and he became the one who needed to get out of the way so that they could move forward together. And so he became the the point of focus of get rid of Athanasius, and then the conflict goes away. And so they trumped up all kinds of charges against him. One of the early ones, you've probably heard the story, it lives in, in church history lore, but the, one of the charges against him was the, the bishops drummed up against him was that he had killed another bishop uh, and had cut off his hand and used it for magic. And so this bishop, they had uh, crafted this great plot for him to go into hiding and then to bring Athanasius up on this charge and they had a human hand that they displayed that they said was used by Athanasius for this and they said it was this guy's hand. Well, Athanasius was smarter than them, and he sent one of his deacons to go find this guy. And they found this guy, and he brought him to the the trial. And as he showed up, you know, the shock and the awe of him there, and his hands were hidden when he walked into the trial by design. And as Athanasius started talking, he, he asked him, is this that man you're saying I cut off his hand? Well, yes, it is. And he slowly, as he kept talking, lifted up one side of his robe to show one of his hands, and as he kept talking, lifted up the other side and showed his other hand, completely uh, tripping up their arguments against him and proving his innocence. But because he would not give an inch, bishops conspired with emperors to put him into exile 17 years total in his life. He's been called the Black Dwarf, as I mentioned. He's also been named the Saint of Stubbornness because he was despised for his refusal to compromise on the truth. He faithfully stood his ground. The Latin phrase is contra mundum against the world. At times, it did very much feel like it was Athanasius against everyone else. And he obviously had his beloved in the church who loved him and agreed with him, but in church councils, in in the bishopric of other places, in the government, everyone else was against him. 
There would eventually be a second all-church council. I told you about that, the Council of Constantinople. It would happen after Athanasius' death. He uh, came back to Alexandria. I believe he served at the end there for about seven or eight years in relative peace. His push for the truth started to win the day, but it had been 45 years of constant friction and attack against the truth. But finally, at the Council of Constantinople, the matter was settled. You could also Google later the Athanasian Creed, which is the clearest statement of the the deity and the humanity of Jesus, defining not just the relationship between the Father and the Son, but also the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, making clear distinctions without mitigating the reality that all three are God and all three are distinct in office and in person. During Athanasius' life, however, he almost knew nothing of that peace. He knew constant conflict over the divine essence of Christ. So I close asking you, what do we learn from Athanasius? I, I close. I'm midway. I shouldn't have said that. I'm midway. What do we learn from the reality of Athanasius and his life and his ministry as it relates to the triunity of God, Father, Son, and Spirit? Well, we learn first that truth must be defined carefully. I got a little cute in my outline, all the C's there you'll see as I explain them. I probably should have just used other words, but I didn't. So here we go. Definitions matter. We must define truth carefully. We must think long and hard to understand the truth. And this is going to require using words that are not in Scripture to help define what it is we believe about Scripture because the very words of Scripture are the ones that are up for grabs. And so the the church has long been filled with scholars and pastors, should be the same office, pastor scholars who shepherd the people of God with their mind and with their pen, who think deep and long and hard about what the Bible says and about what they understand to be true about what the Bible says, biblical truth defended clearly and carefully. You see there on the screen the the two Greek words, homoousis, or homoousius. I'm, I'm getting them totally wrong. I actually practiced them, and I still got them wrong. But you can see the difference is one iota, that's a Greek letter, one I in that second word. The whole controversy turns on that one small letter. The first one means of the same substance. The second Greek word means of similar substance. A small difference that has all of the difference. It's the difference between the divine and the creaturely. One says that the Son is God. The other says that the Son is like God. So if a being is God, then saying he is like God is entirely wrong, right? And if a being is only like God, then declaring him to be God would be heresy, if not blasphemy. This mattered so greatly to Athanasius because he understood That if you lose the deity of Jesus, you lose the saving power of Jesus. The gospel has its power because the Son of God, who is one with the Father, of the same essence as the Father, infinite God in finite human flesh, came and gave his life as a sacrifice for the sins of sinners like you and me. He argued powerfully that if the Son is not himself fully God, then he cannot reconcile us to God 
since his death would not have infinite power to save us from sin against an infinite and holy God. Only if Christ is fully divine can he reconcile us to God. To you, I mean, this is gospel ABC, correct? You understand that, you grasp that, you know that anyone who denies the deity of Christ is not a Christian, does not hold to the true gospel, does not have a saving gospel. You grasp that. The reason you grasp that is because, in part, Athanasius stood for 45 years on that bedrock truth and refused to move over one letter. That second word is the word that was recommended by another emperor to find a way forward that they both could agree to disagree and get along within the church. And Athanasius refused to give one inch of ground. When we come to doctrinal matters, particularly as they relate to the heart of our faith, the inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth of our Lord, the sinless life of our Lord, the deity of our Lord, the work of our Lord to atone us from our sins, to to pay the sacrifice for us, a penal substitutionary atonement. These are things that have been up for grabs in our area in the last 15 years. We must continue to contend for the faith. The battle has been fought, truth has been defined, and it rages still. Recently, I don't know if you saw this, but recently the Southern Baptist Convention has been embroiled in yet another controversy, which seems to be almost every day now. But, and I don't, I don't have any notes on this, so this is all off the top of my head to try to give you a, a lowdown of what happened here, but they partnered, the, the North American Mission Board partnered with a organization called, or that has a campaign called He Gets Us. And they have commercials, maybe you saw some of their commercials last spring, I think during March Madness they had some out. Uh, I, I remember seeing them back then and thinking, what is that? And I never did much research on it, I uh, just thought it was a weird thing and, and let it go. Um, but recently it blew up on Twitter last week, actually, uh, as a faithful Southern Baptist pastor in Texas by the name of Tom Buck saw them promoting this and started asking questions. And so he started looking into the movement or the campaign, He Gets Us, and started trying to figure out who they are and what they promote. And as he looked into what it is that that they were saying, he uh, realized that really what they were trying to do was just be a bridge between uh, pagan culture, culture that denies God and lives however it wants to, and the perception of a judgmental church, uh, trying to, to... Soften the blow of Christians who've stood for truth and morality and, and who are now becoming the, uh, the worst of society because we're hurting all these people who refuse to bow the knee, particularly in morality. And so their campaign is to let, uh, let everybody know that Jesus isn't like the church, essentially. That he's more loving. He, he understands you as a sinner, and he bridges that gap for you. So, for instance, Tom Buck went onto their website, and he... Um, posed as a transgendered person, uh, later went again and posed as a homosexual person, had a conversation in their chat room asking them for uh, if they would recommend to him a church that would affirm him as a homosexual 
wouldn't judge him for that sin because all his Christian friends now are judging him for it. He's looking for a church that won't judge him for that. Can I be a Christian and do that? And they affirmed yes and we'll find you a church and they did and recommended it to him. Okay, that does not surprise me. They are have a wrong view of Christ, and having a wrong view of Christ has led them to a wrong engagement with culture. You see how important that is? Because of their wrong view of Christ, viewing him as, as basically a more saintly sinner than you, who, who can help you get to God, that's essentially their view of Christ. Then they can engage culture by not calling sin, sin, by not proclaiming the judgment that is to come, and by putting before them a gospel that sounds good in the moment, it's like a lollipop gospel, it tastes good, and then it's gone. It's so important for us to clearly understand the nature and essence and work of Christ. It's not, it's not confusing to me or surprising to me that that's happening in our society. What's surprising to me is that a historic uh, convention of the faith that has stood for decades on the truth of the gospel was willingly partnering with a ministry or a campaign like that. It's insidious, it's uh, subtle, it creeps in unaware. Beloved, be on guard, contend for the faith. Second truth, truth must be defended courageously. If you're, gonna, if you're gonna defend truth clearly and carefully, you're gonna also have to defend it courageously. You're not gonna have to pick the fight, the fight's gonna pick you. You're not going to have to pick the battle. The battle's going to come after you. If you stand for and contend for the faith, if you stand firm on the word of Christ, you will have a battle to, to war and to wage, and you taking the stand will cost you something. It will often put you in the minority, even in the professing Christian community like it did for Athanasius. It will maybe eventually even put you against your own government. You, you might be you contra mundum, you against the world. The church has always needed men and women who are willing to be hated and hunted for the sake of defending gospel truth. As I believe Steve Lawson says, the problem with preachers today is that no one wants to kill them. How very true. Preachers need the edge of the reality that people hate the truth. I do not mean that we need to, to be ourselves divisive in how we present it or throwing all kinds of of daggers and swords at all those around. We don't need, again, to look for the fight. The fight will find us as we contend for the faith and stay on guard. And indeed, the church will face this in the days to come. And so I ask you, are you ready? Are we ready for the battle to come? I don't know on what front it will hit us first or next, I should say. But are we ready? Are we ready to lose something for the sake of standing for the truth? Third truth I think we get is that truth must be defended contextually. What I mean by that is where the battle is raging. In your context, where is the battle being fought? If you, if you fight all of the places, if you're faithful on all points except for the one that's under attack, you are not faithful. So we must know where the attack is happening and we must be willing to stand and protect and guard and defend sound doctrine and call out those who are not. This is primarily the job of elders in the body of Christ. Titus 1 and verse 9, Paul says to Titus, you find men who hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. 
We must be led by men both now and into the future. Young men, we need you to rise up, stand up, dig into sound doctrine, and be the next elders of Newton Bible Church who know how to teach the word and defend the word. Refute and rebuke those who contradict it within and without the body. The truth must be defended contextually. And then lastly, it must be defended cheerfully. It must be defended cheerfully or maybe better, joyfully. I want to read for you a paragraph that is from John Piper's book, and, and it's about joy, which you would expect from Piper. He is, in our day and age, the apostle of joy, and I'm thankful for him in that sense. He says this, Athanasius Contramundum, and this is from his book, 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. If you have to read one book by Piper, read this one. It's a, it's a tome. It's huge. It's a brick. It's a doorstop, whatever you want to call it, but it's worth reading. And you can read one chapter at a time. You actually can listen to these biographical sermons on desiringgod.org. Just go on and look for biographical sermons. I've not listened to one yet that I'm like, that was a waste of my time. They are all encouraging. They give you courage as you listen to the stories of men and women who've stood for truth. He says this, Athanasius Contramundum should inspire every pastor to stand his ground meekly and humbly and courageously whenever a biblical truth is at stake. But be sure that you always out-rejoice your adversaries. If something is worth fighting for, it is worth rejoicing over. And the joy is essential in the battle. For nothing is worthy, worth fighting for that will not increase our everlasting joy in God. This was part of Athanasius' battle strategy with his adversaries. He said, let us be courageous and rejoice always. Let us consider and lay to heart that while the Lord is with us, our foes can do us no hurt. But if they see us rejoicing in the Lord, contemplating the bliss of the future, mindful of the Lord, deeming all things in his hand, they are discomfited and turned backwards. This would radically change what I have experienced in most doctrinal controversies. If we as the church would defend it with sheer joy, meaning we are working hard for something that is for our and others' everlasting joy in Christ. And if we lose it, we lose joy. Let's out-rejoice our opponents. For if truth is worth defending, as Piper has said, it is worth rejoicing in. As we close, I want you to listen to this summary statement by Parker Williamson about Athanasius. He says this, Athanasius said his name to the creed which expressed his belief. And for 50 years, he stood unswervingly by that confession. Every argument that ingenuity could invent was used to prove it false. Bishops met together in great numbers, condemned his views, and invoked upon him the curse of God. Emperors took sides against him, banished him time and time again, and chased him from place to place, setting a reward on his head. At one time, all bishops of the church were persuaded or coerced into pronouncing sentence against him, so that the phrase originated, Athanasius against the world. But with all this pressure bearing on him, he changed his ground not one inch. His clear eye saw the truth once, and he did not permit his conscience to tamper with temptations to deny it. His loyalty to the truth made him a great power for good and a great blessing to the churches of his own and of all times. May God find us faithful like that. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you again for the testimony and the example of this brother who's gone before us. We pray that you would help us today 
as called to by Jude to contend earnestly for the faith that you have once for all delivered to us, your people. Would you show us in the days to come where that battle will rage? Help us to be wise and discerning. Help us to be clear and careful. Help us to be joyful as we defend truth for ours and others' eternal joy. Lord, we need your help to do this by your spirit. Would you lead us into all truth for the glory of of your name? Amen.